brings me to Tullahoma for the reason that Art has already shared. Um, all of those of you who have grandchildren, they're brilliant and smart and wonderful and, and nice and all of those things, but now Katie and Bonnie are something else. This is a marvelous study we're going to have together. I'm uh, committed to be with you <clears throat> for six teaching sessions. Now that's not enough to cover chapters five, six, and seven in the Gospel of Matthew. What I want to ask you to do, please, is to change whatever plans you had for tonight and for tomorrow night and Tuesday night and plan to be here. We're going to have a wonderful time together as we look at this extremely significant and delightful study. Now let me give you the lay of the land so that you'll know what we're going to attempt to do in each of our sessions. <clears throat> this morning we're going to be taking an introductory look, um, not going into the verses in this first session this morning, but rather an introduction and overview of the Sermon on the Mount. Um, let's take a look about uh, what, it, uh, what it is, what it purports to be, um, the audience that it is directed toward, and then in the morning worship hour, we're going to really begin the look at the passages proper as we look at the Beatitudes under the title of an abundance of joy. And so we'll be thinking about this almost most famous, I suppose other than John 3, 16, uh, passage out of the New Testament in the Beatitudes. And then tonight, when we gather back at 5 o'clock, from 5 to 6, we're going to be looking at the, these passages in the 5th chapter <clears throat> that deal with a Christian's influence, the kind of influence Jesus wants a Christian to have, and his standard for righteousness. There are all kind of yardsticks in the world. Not all of them are true. Not all of them are right. But Jesus gives us a yardstick for righteousness, and he describes it for us, and we'll be looking at that in the uh, five to six period tonight, and then in six to seven period in the evening worship, <clears throat> we'll be looking at Jesus' standard in action and Jesus' standard for respectability. Everybody would like to be respectable, or at least most folks. I've met a few folks that didn't seem to make any difference to, but uh, most folks in the matter of respectability, and we're going to take a look at what Jesus said about that. Then tomorrow night, we'll deal with the uh, sixth chapter, right motives and right values, and on Tuesday evening, we're going to look pointedly and specifically as to what Jesus had to say about the Christian's relationships, about our relationship with each other and our relationship to Christ himself. 
And so there's a lot of, there, there's a lot of territory marked off. And it's, um, uh, we're, we'll be flying low, so fasten your seat belts and uh, we'll do our best to try to cover the material. Let me urge you, please, uh, if you haven't done so already, this afternoon sometime, uh, read chapters 5, 6, and 7 of the Gospel of Matthew. Doesn't take long to do it. Over a number of years when I was in the pastorate, I was able to take groups to the Holy Land any number of times, and one of the highlights of that would be when we gathered at that traditional spot where Jesus delivered the Sermon on the Mount, and it was my joy to read chapters 5, 6, and 7 there on that, on that spot. You get, you get the flow of it and the continuity of it. And if you have one or two different kinds of translations about, read it in, in, in several translations and it'll, it'll do you good. Now that's the overview of the direction in which we'll be going for these six brief sessions together. Let's have a word of prayer together. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you with rejoicing that you have given us your word. That in your son, the Lord Jesus, who came and not only died for us in that supreme sacrifice, but who taught us and who shared with us those eternal truths that would help us to be more like you and acceptable to you in the kind of lives that we live. Bless us in our study. Open up the words for us. Make the pages live. Make the experience to be fresh for each one of us. And, O oh Lord, help us as we do our study that each of us will know the instruction and the empowering that comes from your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' wonderful name, amen. In Matthew, <clears throat> the fifth chapter, the first two verses. Now when he saw the crowds, he went up into the mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying. Now we'll just put a breather at that particular point. The author of the material that we study, the compiler of the teachings of Jesus, is Matthew. Matthew, one of the original disciples of our Lord, Matthew was a tax collector. We feel very close to tax collectors this time of year, between January and April the 15th, and so it sort of helps us maybe to remember that as we're studying what, uh, what Matthew compiled here in the teachings of Jesus, that it is uh, also from the human leveling, leavening side of the, of the tax collector. Remember that Matthew <clears throat> wrote his gospel primarily to the Jewish reader. Now, because Christianity today is generally considered to be a Gentile religion, a non-Jewish religion, sometimes that comes to us as something a little strange. But remember that Jesus was born and lived and functioned 
in the midst of the Jewish context, the Jewish family, the Jewish life. And Matthew, writing his gospel, is directing the thoughts primarily to the Jewish mind. So with a Jewish mindset, there were certain things that, that Jesus would say that the people automatically would respond to, and they'd know exactly what he was talking about. But for those of us now almost 2,000 years later, with a Gentile mindset, it's a little different. Sometimes we have to do a little extra digging, really to find out what the Jew would have understood just uh, almost by second nature in listening to the words of Jesus. Now, when he saw the crowds, nothing ever escaped Jesus. You realize that? He'd be going down a road, talking with his disciples. Very busy conversation, very important conversation. He'd be teaching them. But he happened to see a little bird that had fallen on the side of the road. And he stopped and he used that as a text to share something about the gracious love and provision and care of the all-knowing Father. Jesus saw the crowds. It's easy to see the multitudes and not be moved by them. Certainly that's true in our day. We literally drowned in the visual picture of starving millions. A few years ago with the spotlight on Ethiopia and now Somalia, can you turn a newscast on without seeing pitiful, little, starving children, pitiful, gaunt, dying adults, the multitudes? And we see so much of it. We are just to the point of not seeing anymore, aren't we? Never was it that way with Jesus. When he saw the multitude, something stirred in his own heart. When he saw the people. Now, remember the context that leads us up to this particular experience that's being described at the beginnings of this fifth chapter. We have in the, in the second chapter of Matthew's gospel, we have that description of his Nazareth years. And then we have the discussion about John the Baptist, who he was and what he said and what he did. And then in the third chapter, we have the account of the baptism of Jesus by John the baptizer. Then we come to the temptation experience. For immediately after his baptism, Jesus went the 40 days and nights into the wilderness and there was tempted of the devil. And then we have the account of the beginnings of Jesus' earthly ministry where he begins his ministry even as he finishes his earthly ministry with the words, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. That's the way he started it, and that's the way he stopped it. And Matthew gives us that account. In the fourth chapter, Matthew records how Jesus called his disciples, and he heals the sick. And then in that fourth chapter and the 25th verse, 
that leads up just immediately the prior to it. Large crowds from Galilee. The Decapolis, now that's the ten cities, the ten small cities that made a ring literally around the Lake of Galilee. From Jerusalem, from Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. So that's the context of it. All of these things have led up to the moment now of the teaching. The multitudes are there. The multitudes who do not trust him yet as the Savior. The multitudes who, who know something about his miracle power. The multitudes who know something about uh, the fact that they sense that there is a difference in this individual again. You see, it is said so very clearly in the scripture that he spoke to them as one having authority. They recognized that in the teachings of Jesus, in the preachings of Jesus, that they were listening to one who was not just being a parrot, but rather one with authority and who knew exactly what he was saying and the way that he was leading them. And Jesus, seeing the multitudes, began to speak specifically to his disciples. Now the disciple, and by the way, that's what Jesus referred to his followers, not by the name Christian. They were his disciples. They learned from him. He was the schoolmaster. He was the teacher. And they would learn from him. And here's the realization that as the multitudes gather, as the crowds are around, that it is a mixed bag of folks who will be listening to what he's saying. But let me just nail it down right here at the very beginning of our study, that if you do not understand and accept the fact that Jesus is speaking to his disciples, to those men and women who already have accepted him as Lord and Savior. They have trusted him as the promised Messiah. There are others who are not yet Christians who will hear the word, but Jesus is speaking his words. It's more a teaching than it is a preaching. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. It's more teaching on the Mount. He is speaking directly to and pointedly to his disciples. And he wanted them to understand as the very kingdom of God began to unfold within their lives, he wanted them to understand that the way a citizen of the kingdom lives is different from the way that a citizen of the world lives. There's a different Lifestyle. Lifestyle is a, is a common term. We didn't used to hear that term very much, but now it's a very common term that somebody lives a certain lifestyle. Well, Jesus was saying here to his disciples, there is a given certain lifestyle that I want you who are my disciples, my followers, I want you to know the precepts by which you as a Christian, as a follower of me, should live in this world. When he saw the crowds, he was there in the mountainside. It's an interesting thing to go through the scriptures and
and uh, with your magic marker and mark the experiences from Genesis all the way through Revelation where important and exciting and wonderful and spiritual things took place in the mountains. There was the mountain uh, there at Sinai where Moses, the man of God, up on the mountaintop received the commandments of God God giving to Moses what the precepts of how a godly individual would live. Thou shalt, thou shalt not. He laid the way out so there'd be no mistaking the way that the godly individual was to live. But the law across the centuries had become something very cold and very hard. And the interpreters of the law and the speakers about the law had become very sanctimonious that clan, that group of people that we call the, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, the scribes, the writers of the law, and therefore having been a scribe and writing it, pulling it into their minds would then become interpreters of the law. But you see, over the course of the centuries, the law <clears throat> which God gave to be a blessing and a guidepost along the way for the living of the godly life had become twisted and turned. And here we are at a second Sinai. Here we are at a second mountain. And at this mountain, Jesus is now talking to his followers, his disciples. The difference between Jesus and Moses is that while Moses was a godly man, he was not the only begotten son of God. Jesus is the only begotten Son of God, the long-promised Messiah, born of the virgin womb, lived the sinless life. And here, at, at the beginnings of this public ministry, Jesus wants to lay out for his disciples the way of life for the Christian. And he says, you're to be loving people. Here is the pattern for the Christian disciple. Remember again, I want to emphasize it. I, I underline it in red. I, I shout it out to you. Remember that the Sermon on the Mount, the teachings on the Mount are addressed to Christians. If you forget that, then the teachings become totally impossible and unimaginable. But when we remember that Jesus is addressing himself to his followers, to those who have received him, to those who love him, then with the promise of the power of the Holy Spirit, then the precepts that he lays down for them and then across the years for us are attainable. Not attainable. The Sermon on the Mount does not spell out a way that an individual becomes a child of God in the kingdom. The Sermon on the Mount is not an evangelistic sermon. The Sermon on the Mount is not primarily a revival sermon. The Sermon on the Mount is for Christians, disciples, learners, so that what they receive into their life, into our lives, then in the doing of these things as Jesus gives us direction 
Others certainly would see the marked difference between our lives and others who are not Christian. And as a secondary thing, it might be evangelistic, but that is not its primary thrust. So I think we need to remember that, or it really will not make sense to us somewhere along the way. Jesus, in that second verse, Matthew says, began to teach them. Not a sermon, again, not an introduction, three points in a poem, but a teaching, a teaching that has some, some uh, continuity about it. And you see, Jesus, <clears throat> Jesus was not only the teacher, but Jesus was the prime example of what he was teaching about. A lot of folks say, now you listen carefully to what I tell you to do. Don't, don't do what I do, do what I say. No. Jesus said, this is what I want you to do. This is the way I want you to live. And if you want to see an example of it, look at my life. Jesus is lifted up as the example, the perfect example of that which he teaches. Now, it's a legitimate question as we come thinking about this overview. It's a legitimate question. Was this, quote, sermon on the mount, end quote, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, was this delivered all at one time, <clears throat> at one sitting? Or is it a compilation of the sayings of Jesus spoken at different times? Now, I have to say to you that, that scholars, and I'm not a scholar, but the scholars that I read are pretty much equally divided on it. Men and women whose opinions I, I honor are on both sides of the fence. Some say, no, it was Jesus there. He saw the crowd, saw the multitudes. He sat down and he taught them in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 as one continuous teaching. And others say, no, that there are things about it. <clears throat> Obviously, Jesus said this at a different time and whatnot. And Matthew then writing, pulling this together years and years later, then Matthew would be saying uh, to them, now this is the way I want you Christians in my church, Matthew church, this is the way I want you to live and to act and to behave. In 1969, I had the privilege of preaching in India for a month. And in South India, I met a group of folks that I didn't even know. Art had been in seminary. I had been to school. I had read church history. And I didn't even know this particular group of folks were on the face of the earth. At that time, in 1969, they were 11 million strong. The Church of the Mar Toma, M-A-R-T-H-O-M-A, -A, the Church of the Mar Toma. And their tradition has it that Matthew, following the command of the Lord, go into all the world, he made his way down to the very tip of that subcontinent that we know as India, and there proclaimed Jesus, and their tradition has it 
that Matthew himself organized seven and one-half churches. Now, I think that's an interesting thing. I've seen a lot of those half churches. <laughs> but to have it as a part of your tradition that he organized a half a church, I, I never got really to the root of that one. But Matthew, <clears throat> Matthew, if that tradition is correct, and he was in India, and he was in South India, and he was proclaiming the gospel of Jesus, and he was creating churches there, Matthew wanted to give to them the precepts of how the Christian is to live. And certainly the culture of the people of South India is far different from that of Judea. Now, the question then is this. Was it delivered at one time or was it collected over several teaching periods? My own personal bias, for whatever it's worth, is that I kind of think it was said all at one time. Just the way, particularly now, when we get into the Beatitudes in the morning worship hour, when we get into that flow, there is a connectedness in the Beatitudes where one is based upon the one that's immediately preceding it. So you don't just sort of pick apples off a tree to make an apple pie. In that way, just sort of a hodgepodge and a mix-up, I think it was a one-time teaching situation. But let me let you in on this secret. If you think otherwise, that's okay with me. Uh, we happen to live in a time where there are an awful lot of so-called prominent folks who say, if you don't believe it like I believe it and say it like I say it and dot the I like I dot the I, you're, you're not even really a Christian. No, I don't believe that. Now, okay, what was the purpose of the sermon? Was to give the perfect pattern for the disciple's life. Are you a Christian? Do you know the Lord Jesus as your personal Lord and personal Savior? Was there the time when you opened your heart and you let him come in and live with you? And you professed your faith in him and you have committed yourself to be known as a Christian in the midst of the world. Then the purpose of this sermon for you and for me is to show us how to live a perfect pattern life in this present life. How is it possible to hear and to respond and to do what Jesus says? How is that possible? Well, it is not humanly possible. There again is one of the reasons we know he was not speaking to the lost crowd. Now, lost people need to hear what he had to say but he was not addressing these words to the lost because there was no human way they could ever do what he was calling on folks to do. It is only as we are energized by the Holy Spirit of God that we can even begin to come to grip to find the handles in order to, to do, to receive, to say, to be the kind of Christian that he wants us to be. Various interpretive approaches have been given. Our libraries are full of brilliant commentaries on ways to approach it. I just want to list, this seems to be about the most exhaustive list that I 
that I found. It's a list made by Harvey MacArthur, and it is listed in the Southwestern uh, Baptist Theological Seminary Journal of Theology for the fall of 92. That's always an issue that uh, deals with the January Bible study. And so Mr. MacArthur's uh, list 12 different ways that historically men and women have read and heard and understood the Sermon on the Mount. Now let me just quickly take us on a helicopter ride through it uh, and you can see the different kinds of approaches all by good, well-meaning, godly people. He says there is the absolutist or the literal approach. And Augustine, St. Francis of Assisi, and some of the Anabaptists early in our pre-Baptist history uh, ascribe to that view, and there are some today. Uh, the uh, literalist, the absolutist, that when Jesus said it, he meant it to be done literally in that exact way. Now that's okay until you get into the hard saying. And then the hard sayings is that if your eye offends you, pull it out. If your right hand offends, cut it off. Now, the Muslim fundamentalist practice that today. And there are those who say that is the only way that you can do it. <clears throat> One of the great spiritual giants of Russia was Leo Tolstoy, and, and that was his particular view, even to the point of self-mutilization. Then there are those who approach it with saying, well, yes, it is to be literally understood and received, but with some modification. In other words, there are the escape hatches for these hard sayings where some quote, and I'm quoting, common sense comes into play. Then there are those who approach the Sermon on the Mount and its teachings, and by the way, they are hard sayings. <clears throat> Whole volumes have been written under that particular title, the hard sayings of Jesus. He didn't always go around patting children on the head. There are the hard sayings of Jesus. Well, how are we to hear them, and how, what are we to to do about these. There are those who say, well, it's to be understood in the sense of that Jesus was using hyperbole. That is, he would make an extreme statement, so far extreme, it would be like almost a slap on the face and people would stop and say, well, no, wait a minute, what's he talking about? There are those who say that's the, that's the approach. There are others who say that the uh, proper approach to the understanding of the Sermon on the Mount is that it is directed primarily to the matter of attitudes and
what part does attitude versus action play? You see, now this is one interpretation that a hard line is drawn uh, between these two. Then there are others who say no. When Jesus was teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, talking to his disciples, that he was actually giving just general principles. General principles that can be applied in numerous situations and in numerous cultures. Well, I kind of like the sound of that myself. I've been able to travel, as many of you know, all over the world. Been a lot of primitive places, third world countries, a lot of sophisticated countries and cities with great histories of civilization. And one of the things that I've discovered in my travels that no matter where I am, whether it's, again, in South India, or whether it's in Africa, or whether it's in Australia, or wherever, or Tullahoma, Tennessee, is that you can feel at home with your brothers and sisters in Christ. That's a wonderful thing. It's a great, great thing. So here we have the general principles approach that say here Jesus was talking about general principles of life that are applicable anywhere. Then there are those <clears throat> that Dr. MacArthur says would, uh, would take the double standard approach. And this basically, as he says, is the Roman Catholic way in that they distinguish between those primary precepts that must be followed and the counsels that Jesus was giving as simply to say, if you can manage to handle this, why, you'll be better off. But the drawing the line, a double standard there. Then there are those who say it can really only be understood in the matter of uh, the two realms approach. There is the spiritual realm and there is the temporal realm. The Christian lives in both. And so therefore, if we're to have a proper understanding of it, why then uh, we must see how it applies in both realms for the Christian. Then there is the analogy of scripture approach. Now, this particular position of interpretation assumes <clears throat> that every ethical level described in the Bible is on exactly the same level and the same plane. Uh, for the time in which it was given and to the group for which it was given, it was applicable and absolute. But certainly we have to acknowledge that what Jesus said to his disciples on the mount and the Sermon on the Mount is high and above and lifted up above anything that was spoken through Moses or through others through the centuries. Then there are those who say, well, you can really understand what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. You can interpret it properly under an interim ethnic, ethnic approach. How many of you remember about Albert Schweitzer? Albert Schweitzer was a great French physician. He was a doctor, teeth, renowned as a doctor. Had the burden of the poor of Africa, and he went to the midst of black Africa and there gave his life. 
and he was still living in a lot of our lifetimes, for he died not, not too many years ago. He was a theologian. Many do not know that he was a great organist. He memorized and could play <clears throat> from memory all the works of Bach. It was a great thing. I used to have a set of old LP records that were recorded, Albert Schweitzer playing that, all the, all the organ works of Bach. And somewhere along the way it got lost in some move, and I really regret that particular loss. But now Albert Schweitzer, as a renowned theologian, his day, along with so many other talents of genius, said really the Sermon on the Mount could be understood only as an interim ethic. That is, he believed that when Jesus was talking to the disciples on the mount, that Jesus believed the world was really not going to last much longer. And that the disciples needed guidelines on how to live between when he was talking to them and when the world would end. It would really be understood as an interim thing. And therefore, for Albert Schweitzer, it would not have any validity that is the truthfulness and the power of what Jesus had to say and the way that a Christian would live, it would not carry on. It does not apply to modern people. Then Dr. MacArthur tells us that there is the <clears throat> what he terms the dispensational view. That was written down and popularized by a man of the Plymouth Brethren Church, a man by the name of Darby, lived 1800 to 1882. More people would know this particular interpretation of the Sermon on the Mount because this was the official belief of Schofield. And Schofield, in the notes that he made, and Schofield, it is still widely available and still a very popular study Bible, has the dispensational view. This is also officially the view of the Dallas Theological Seminary. And the dispensational view means that when Jesus was teaching here in the Sermon on the Mount that he was laying out a code of ethics for the future only, and it does not apply to now. Now, I'm not, I, I hope I won't get in an argument with anybody. Schofield has taught many people many magnificent truths and a way of understanding the scriptures. But just remember that the Schofield notes that are printed on the bottom of the page, that's not a part of the inspired, infallible word of God. That's all I ask you to do. Now, there are those who say, well, you can really understand it only in the sense of the repentance view. That what Jesus was saying, that the, that the attention must be given to the fact that Jesus was speaking to the multitudes rather than just to his disciples. And he was speaking to them in order to bring them to repentance and so that they might be a part of his kingdom. This is the official Lutheran view. Then the 12th and the last in this particular list is the unconditioned divine will view where the commands of Jesus are absolute and they are unconditional. They are conditioned 
by the time in which they were spoken to the people to whom Jesus was addressing his sermon, but had application for the generation that would follow, and the one that would follow that, and the one that would follow that, and the one that would follow that, until it would come into our own time of hearing and responding. The Sermon on the Mount assumes a brand new person, new in Christ, who desires to live according to the divine will. So the Sermon on the Mount does not tell us so much how to be saved, but rather how the saved are supposed to live in our present world. The Sermon on the Mount is addressed to Christian people, and it'll help us and it'll strengthen us, and the Holy Spirit will help us if we want to live this kind of lifestyle. The Sermon on the Mount is an ideal it is an ideal to challenge. It's not just a carrot on a stick out in front to sort of nudge us along. Not, not that at all. But we must remember that it is an ideal, that it is the picture of the perfect child of God. You say, well, I, I can't attain to that. No, you can't, and neither can I. But as we do the best that we can, to hear and to know and to try to understand the precepts of Jesus as given in the Sermon on the Mount, we come a step closer and a step closer and a step closer. It is descriptive. It is a design for life. It is a pattern for living. It's more than a description. It actually prescribes that which is our expected Christian behavior. It's an inward thing. You can't read these three chapters without knowing that Jesus is speaking directly inwardly into the heart it's a christian ethic the sermon on the mount is not for non-christians well non-christians ought to read it and they ought to know it but they can't come anywhere close to understanding it or living it at all until they become a christian by faith in the lord jesus it is a a logic an ethic that looks to the new age the coming as well as to the present kingdom and it's all-inclusive. It speaks to every single aspect of the Christian's life. Help me once again. I wrote down the terminal times. 940, all right. We're going to have five more minutes. Stay with me. Well, I... How then, when we look at all... The, five, the three chapters, Matthew 5, Matthew 6, Matthew 7. Then we see the Christian character that's delineated. Jesus said, I want you who are my followers to have an influence. And he talks about salt and he talks about light. He says, I want you to be a righteous people. And he talks about the relationship to the law and avoiding lust and avoiding anger. About fidelity in marriage, about non-retaliation. He shows the Christian what real religion is, that it's not something that's highly censorious and highly judgmental of, of others. He talks about prayer, and as we get uh, uh, tomorrow night, 
Uh, we'll be dealing with what is called the Lord's Prayer, really a model prayer. And he talks about ambition. He talks about our relationships. For we do not live as hermits in the world. We do have relationships with others and with God. He talks about commitment, the call for the radical choice. But the conclusion of it all is when we look over at the very conclusion. You see, sometimes it's good to, to know the end, to read the last chapter before you read some of the others. And the very last end of it, over here in the, the very end of the seventh chapter. And when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. My goodness, what a rich and powerful and marvelous thing it is. In the morning service, Soon to follow now in just a few minutes, we're going to be looking at an abundance of joy, the Beatitudes, the Blesseds, contained in the first part of the fifth chapter. So, let's pray for each other as we study. I believe we've, Phil, you have a word for us? He's running around somewhere. There's something about registration? Okay. I'm not there to give a preliminary. Okay. Okay.